difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way that it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Genevieve Kosky. And Tasha Robinson. On our last episode, we talked about Casino, Martin Scorsese's epic story about the rise and fall of the mob-controlled Tangiers in Las Vegas. On this episode, we're bringing in Lorraine Scafaria's Hustlers, which has earned a lot of comparisons to Scorsese for its robust depiction of a criminal scam operating in the shadow of a legitimate business. Here, that business is a high-end strip club in 2007 where Destiny, an exotic dancer played by Constance Wu, befriends Ramona, the club's superstar dancer played by Jennifer Lopez. The more experienced Ramona takes Destiny under her wing, showing her how to lure the biggest Wall Street whales into charging thousands of dollars in drinks and lap dances to their credit cards. When the economy takes a turn, Ramona brings Destiny and two other women, Mercedes and Annabelle, into a freelance scam that limits the cut the club can take. Targeting rich men at bars and using an experimental concoction of ketamine and MDMA to impair their memory and judgment, the women keep their marks conscious enough only to max out their credit cards and not remember much of what happened in the morning. Their logic is that these men won't want to raise much of a fuss about it. Much like Casino, it's not all smooth sailing, however, and there are consequences both legal and personal that await them down the line. Based on the New York Magazine article, The Hustlers at Scores, by Jessica Pressler, the film is about scammers scamming scammers and the system that determines which scams are legitimate. We'll talk about it after the break. dependent on anybody. I just want to be able to take care of my grandma, maybe go shopping every once in a while. These Wall Street guys. You want them drunk enough to get their credit card? But sober enough to sign a check. We didn't do anything wrong. Is he dead? You know, Tony wouldn't let this happen. I'm gonna text him. Who gave her her phone back? Are you in? So what did everyone think? I loved the first act of this movie and then spent the rest of it wishing to go back there. I think this movie, there's a lot in it to like, especially in the uh, performances, um, although maybe not all of them, which we can perhaps get into. But that like introductory section where you're introduced to this world and to these characters, and it's very similar to Casino in that respect. In the first, you know... 20, 25 minutes of this movie are, are really narcotic and, and draw you in to this world. Um, but I feel like once it gets into the specifics of the crime and how it falls apart, it loses the thread a little bit. It condenses things and uh, prioritizes things in a way that I feel you don't really get a good sense of the danger or the effect of this uh, hustle on, on its victims. I think this movie is trying to maybe present its protagonists as more, maybe not sympathetic, but like gives more credence to their suspect motives than it perhaps should in twisting them through a, a sort of feminist lens. And I think that actually does a kind of a disservice 
to the movie, particularly in the relationship between Constance Wu and Jennifer Lopez's characters. I think it tries to make their friendship more central to the story than it was in real life, but also in doing that, I think it loses the thread when it comes time to show that relationship falling apart. We can parse specifics a little more, but generally speaking, I liked a lot of this movie in the early going. I liked parts of it as it continued on, for sure. And I do think that the praise that Jennifer Lopez is getting for her performance is mostly earned. But it just it didn't hold together for me in a, in a satisfying way uh, coming out of the theater. Uh, Tasha? I found it pretty unsatisfying, too, although I'm in a strange position with this film. Having seen it in the middle of TIFF, in the middle of a bunch of movies that I enjoyed a lot more, I can't help but wonder if I would have had a better experience if I'd seen it more as a standalone. And I suspect I would have had a better experience if I enjoyed Martin Scorsese's crime movies more, because (laughs) this is, it feels so much like a female version of a Martin Scorsese crime movie. And some part of me is just really grateful that this movie got made, you know, that it's out in the mm-hmm. world, that this yeah. exact specific genre of movie is being made in a different way than it's been made over and over and over and over for decades. But at the same time, uh, I just didn't connect with it very much. And it kind of comes down to a, a lot of the same complaints that I had with Casino to kind of uh, get ahead of ourselves on, on connections. Is sort of a feeling that I didn't, in the end, know many of these people very well at all, that I was being told in voiceover who they were and how I was supposed to feel about who they were. Uh, but like in the end, I, I kept waiting for the big twist where uh, Ramona revealed herself as uh, either really in need of a family or really venal and using everybody. And I'm not sure the film ever really got to a point of figuring out who she is. I'm not sure that the film ever really figured out who Destiny is. We kind of Mm -hmm. see her in the frame story as someone who's apparently achieved an upper middle class level of life. But we don't really know how she got there. Like, did she did she finally learn to save money instead of blowing it on chinchilla coats? Or did she like work her way into a better education and a better job? Or did, did she marry money? We assume she didn't inherit it. I just I don't know how we get from the woman we see at the beginning of the movie to the woman we see, well, in the framing story of the movie. And it just, it seemed really telling. Like over and over, I, I kind of find myself saying, but I, I don't know who these people are. No. What I do know is that they're incredibly invested in shopping montages and mm-hmm. designer gear, all of which is just not a very relatable goal for me. I found it fascinating that the movie has all of these elements of like, they have kids to support. They don't necessarily have the best educations. They don't have a lot of options. They feel trapped, but when they get out of being trapped, their way of expressing that is by buying ridiculously overpriced, you know, designer brand stuff and like luxuries they don't need. And I just, I kept thinking, I'm just finding it really hard to care about their goals or about their willingness to do horrible things to achieve their goals, which is a problem that I can have in crime movies in general and Scorsese movies in general have the same kind of uh, difficulty relating to Robert De Niro, like living in a giant luxury pad and still attaching himself to this like horrible, destructive woman who abuses his child. So I, I think it comes down to the same things that sort of disconnected me from Casino disconnected me here. I don't hate either movie. Uh, It's difficult sometimes to defend a 
all right, that was okay uh, mm-hmm. reaction. It's not very sexy uh, trying to fight for a, mm-hmm, yeah, that was fine. But a lot of my reaction to Hustlers was, okay, that was fine. I'm glad it's in the world. It's really not for me. Hmm. Wow. Um, I did not expect <laughs> expect both of you to like. Because, I mean, really, I like I, I like this film more than the two of you, clearly. I do not think it's a, but I, I think that all three of us have a lower opinion of it than most. I mean, it, this is a film that was hugely celebrated out of Toronto. Mm-hmm. I've seen some pretty out of control hyperbole in exalting the film as being like, what do we even need Scorsese for anymore? I've, I've seen things like that float around, and I, and, and I certainly don't agree with that, but I do admire the film's brio and and i think that the film like casino works really well when it's laying out the system and how it works and what and what you know i I think what the scam becomes a little more confusing when they take it out of the club and get other people involved and i think there's a lot of questions that i have about that part of the movie that aren't made particularly clear but i think it is pretty clear in the beginning and kind of exciting and and very pointed in terms of when they decide to start freelancing like this. I mean, they start at the club, you know, and, and Jennifer Lopez is showing Constance Wu how to make money and how to identify the men who have uh, deep pockets and how to get them in a place to where they're going to spend a lot of, of money and what those moves are. All that stuff is really fascinating. And then it's fasc- fascinating to me that once you hit that economic downturn that is caused by the same sort of sleazeballs who who frequent the strip clubs but no longer, um, you get this kind of moral relativism on their part where it's like, I can justify ripping them off because they ripped off the country, you know? And why can't I have some of mine too? I mean, why is what they're doing acceptable and why, why can't I get mine? And, and I think it's important too that they, you know, I mean, maybe there's one too many shopping montages, but I think there is a desire on a lot of people's parts to have things, when, especially when they come from a place where they don't have things, um, to be able to have that extra money, not just to spend on a, on a nice house or a, apartment as we, we see in the movie, but also on those chinchilla coats and on, and on expensive shoes and, and, and jewelry and kind of really enjoy the material things that they had to deny themselves for so long. So there's a lot of release in that. Um, and I think yeah. the film has got that anecdotal f- quality that, that um, makes it kind of fun. I mean, it's, it's got a lot of really good musical sequences, a lot of energy, a lot of style. I mean, I had a good time with it. Yeah, I'll agree with you on thinking that there's a lot of uh, cinematic brio, as you put it, on display here and, and really responding to that. And I, and I will say, I liked all the shopping sequences. Give me more shopping sequences. <laughs> like, like, like you I'm, can have I'm on my record. shopping sequences. <laughs> I'm, I'm on record as finding depictions of conspicuous consumerism and materialism on film, like, pretty fascinating. I, I, there's a reason I love the, the work of Sofia Coppola, you, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I did find find those elements of the film really pleasurable and and intoxicating in in a good way. I think a lot of the problems for me with this film come down to adaptation and having read The Hustlers at Scores and having reread it after, after watching this movie, it became clear to me how the film kind of takes these specific moments and lines. There's so many lines in this movie that come directly from that article, like exact quotes. But I feel like they come as just these super fast blips that almost feel like lip service to the original story. And it doesn't really do the work in connecting a bigger theme or drawing out the criminal plot in a compelling way. It kind of, I think, leans on the work that the article does to draw that out to the extent it does. But I just don't think it does 
enough to make it compelling enough to stand on its own in that way. I'm really glad you brought up uh, Sofia Coppola because I spent a, a fair amount of Hustlers thinking about The Bling Ring, mm. uh, mm-hmm. which is conceptually a pretty similar film about uh, crime and specifically ripping off people who have way too much money and about going all in on on famous brands because that's you know what's there to be stolen uh and about like trying to live the lifestyle uh, of the celebrities that you see around you like sort of reaching for aspirational excess looking at a lifestyle of excess and thinking of it as normal and achievable and necessary and anything below that level uh, as somehow like like sad and tired and beneath you I had an equally hard time relating to the the kids in bling ring who are breaking into celebrities houses and stealing their designer gear but I found that movie so much more entertaining in a way mm. and yeah. In part, it may just be because there's so much less focus on the victims. I feel like Hustlers pushes that narrative pretty hard of like, these people are scumbags and they deserve it. Mm. Uh, But then at the same time, what we see is a bunch of terrible strip club uh, customers behaving very badly. And those aren't the people that later get ripped off. The people that we keep seeing getting ripped off seem like kind of hapless schmoes uh, who get pushed really, really hard into taking drugs they don't necessarily want or just being drugged against their will. And I don't think, I like as a woman, I don't think I can be uncomfortable with women being forcibly drugged and then having horrible things done to them and yet be comfortable with Mm -hmm. it and find it comedic when the same thing is done to a man on screen. I found just the whole, the thing that they were going about, like if they were choosing their targets based on specific bad behavior, I probably would have been a lot more in on this narrative, but that's not the way the story progresses. The story progresses as these guys over here have maltreated us in the club. So as a result, we're going to go find this, this guy who just seems really excited to have women paying attention to him. Uh, we're going to sneak a drug into his drink that might kill him. We're going to steal all his money and we're going to go buy a Louboutins. <laughs> and I yeah. just, I found it really hard to connect to that. Yeah, I think the movie kind of chickens out when it comes to really digging into the cruelty of what they're doing. And as I said before, I think it kind of contextualizes it within this feminist statement or, or girl power <laughs> type of, uh, you know, motive. Um, but it really like comes down to they're doing what they're doing because they've dehumanized their marks in the same way that they've been dehumanized by society. And I think that that is an interesting element of this of this hustle of this story, that the film doesn't do the work to draw out because I think it's a little too concerned with making us like these characters and not letting them be unlikable enough. And I think that's where the Scorsese comparison falls apart. Because in uh, Tasha, you're, you may disagree here based on what, what you've said before. But like, I don't think I've ever liked a Scorsese character, or at least not in his, his crime pictures, nor have I felt like I'm supposed to like them. In here, especially with the Constance Wu character, I kind of think Constance Wu was maybe miscast here, just because she gives Destiny a sort of good girl who got caught up with a in a bad situation kind of veneer. And that's like not what this character was. Like she was shrewd. She was conniving. They were both shrewd and conniving. And I think that there are interesting things to say about that. But this movie doesn't really, I feel, have the guts to satisfactorily say them. 
I think it also chickens out a bit on the on the full on revenge plot. I think that there's a lot of fun uh, in a good revenge plot of, you know, these people have abused us, we'll target them. And uh, the other movie that came to mind watching this was nine to five, uh, the old, <laughs> the, the old comedy. Uh, and the way that's specifically predicated on uh, this man has treated us badly. So we're going to do something exceedingly criminal to him. Uh, yeah. But it's going to be it's going to be comedic and it's going to be deserved. And in the end, you see what we've accomplished as a result. You know, we've we've created this sort of strange feminist utopia of an office where everything functions well, where we care about other people, where this isn't in, wasn't entirely done for selfish reasons. And that movie is a light fantasy, but it hits on a lot of similar themes in a way that I felt was more approachable, uh, was funnier, and in the end, was sort of it was sort of easier to understand why they did what they did for reasons that weren't just greed, basically. Mm-hmm. I want to say, like again, in the in the way we don't question the greed in Scorsese movies. I mean, like obviously, it's demonized and it causes the rise and fall of uh, a lot of characters. But we don't say like, is it okay for men to be that greedy? We probably mm-hmm. shouldn't be focusing on is it okay for women to be this greedy. But I just I found their their venality just kind of gross and off putting. Well, let me ask you this question then, because I think just for clarification's sake for both of you, it was like, do you think that the one of the big problems with the film then is the film is too aligned with the point of view of its characters that there's not enough distance between in terms of attitude about about the justification for example that they have for for their actions the film is too on board with that and that's kind of a problem with the movie is that what i'm getting yes because i mean that's, I, I, that's broadly the, speaking i would say that yeah. yeah because that's i think that's kind of the thing he, the, the key thing to always point out is that you know i mean you know a film can kind of present characters acting in a certain way but their attitude about it is a separate matter you know a separate issue but if you feel like the rationale is sort of corrupt on both sides on both with the characters and and with the filmmaker then obviously that creates a big problem with the movie well i want to talk about the performances in this movie because uh genevieve had mentioned it i have big problems with constance Wu in this film you said she was miscast i agree i just don't think she's persuasive in the role and in the char- on top of the character itself. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't have a problem with her character, and I didn't have a problem with her character like playing naive and and turning out to be very shrewd. I I saw that as character development over time. I saw her as coming into this environment uh, very naive and in need of protection, and then hardening up over time, which I think is another big Scorsese theme in crime pictures. Is you know you start at a certain level of crime. But as you get drawn in further and further, you make worse and worse decisions. And I thought the development of her character from newbie to the you know, person like both running the con and being exceedingly frustrated with Ramona for the people that she brought into the con, for the people she became attached to, I thought that was all pretty interesting. I thought her jealousy of uh, other people Ramona was bringing in under her wing was maybe the film's most interesting element. The fact that it would acknowledge that no matter how successful and, and established she got, she still looked at other girls in the position she used to be in, uh, being rescued in any way, as like a bad thing that was somehow taking away from her relationship with Ramona. And it's a huge cliche. You know, women women can't have friendships without being catty and jealous is a huge cliche. But I don't know. I connected to it. I could I could actually feel 
the strength of her feeling for Ramona, like her possessiveness, her like desire for this mother figure to be her mother figure. And I thought it was among the elements that the film emphasizes, it was the one I I thought was done best. And I think it's maybe the element of the adaptation here that I like least that because I as I kind of mentioned before that friendship, uh, that strong bond between Ramona and Destiny is to a large part of fabrication of the movie in the article, they there's a lot more sort of professional tension between them from the get go. And that and that informs the way that their relationship falls apart. And I think that's more interesting because it doesn't uh, play into these cliches that you mentioned, Tasha, of female friendships and, you know, substitute mother figures and jealousy. And I feel like the relationship between Ramona and Destiny got muddled and unsatisfying as the movie progressed in a way that it may not have if those characters had been more at odds from the beginning and been thrust together into this hustle out of necessity rather than some sort of familial bond that the that the movie keeps coming back to. Yeah, the film by and large is less persuasive as a story about friendship than is a, is a story about a scam. I haven't looked at the New York Magazine piece. I probably should. It's it's right there available for anyone to see. So I didn't really um, know. It's really good. Julia Stiles wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> so talented, <laughs> Julia Stiles. Um, though I, I did, there was an element. I don't. Maybe this is not. Maybe this was also fabricated. But there was an element of the Ramona character that I liked, which is that her fatal flaw. It seems, and this happens when she brings more members onto the crew. Is just mm-hmm. this faith in people, like this, in, in sympathy yeah. for the, their stories. That is accurate to the article. Yeah, I, I really like that aspect of it, you know, because I, I think there is a almost a projection on Destiny's part that there's something corrupt about Ramona when she has a kind of a misread on who Ramona really is. And, and that reveal is pretty strong uh, for me. And I just think that performance is outstanding. I think Jennifer Lopez is just superb in the film from start to finish. I think that she's such a riveting figure and, and kind of is, is really what kind of keeps the thing, her charisma kind of keeps the whole thing together. Well, so Scott, it sounds like you're uh, talking about Ramona as somebody who thinks trust is really important and is thus willing to bring <laughs> toxic people into her life. Wow. And it's almost like uh, that's a connection that we could bring up huh. between this movie and another movie. Well, how about this why don't we come right back after this break to talk about the connections between casino and hustlers what about that that sounds great i was a centerfold once no way Mm. 93 oh my god back when stevie wonder came in Stevie Wonder coming to the club for. <laughs> Casey had him in the champagne room. Swears to God he isn't blind. Wow. How come you're so good? I see you with every single kind of guy, and I don't know. It's like you have them all figured out. I guess I'm just a people person. So now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Tosh, you want to get us started? Well, I just, uh, as I was sort of indicating as we kind of faded out from that last segment, 
I think it's really interesting that both of these films have as kind of a, a central point, as a central plot point, the fact that a main character believes really deeply in trust, believes really deeply that, you know, taking people in and, and giving them your heart is important. And as a result, they both embrace toxic junkies uh, who, you know, bring terrible things into their lives, and they refuse to let them go no matter how those people fail them. In Casino, it's obviously Ace trying desperately to rehabilitate his wife, Ginger, and somehow persuade her to love him, to behave, to treat their daughter well, to uh, not stand on the front lawn, uh, ripping up the grass and throwing at him while screaming (laughs) so all the neighbors can hear. Uh, In Hustlers, it's Ramona taking in more and more strays and bringing them in on the scam, regardless of what the rules say, regardless of what their personal rules say about not accepting addicts, not accepting uh, untrustworthy people. She keeps bringing in untrustworthy people, including one who brings the whole scam down. Mm -hmm. So I just think in both of these films, the idea that like trust and love and emotional openness are seen as kind of useless hubris uh, that will destroy you is just bitterly cynical and like a really interesting gambit. Yeah, though I would say though in Casino, um, what Ace is saying at the top is true and that what's the point if you don't find somebody you can trust and give the key to your life to? The fact is that he chooses the wrong person to do that with and that he's responsible for that choice. I mean, it's not just he's chosen a bad person per se. I don't think that's true. I think he's chosen someone whose wishes are incompatible to his own for how how she wants her life to go and how he wants his life to go they diverge in a in a way that is terrible for both parties but um you know i think trust is important and you know and it, it, i guess it kind of pays off a little bit at the end of hustlers it does get a little bit you know the end of casino is resolutely unsentimental but that's not really true of hustlers hustlers does have that kind of thread of friendship that kind of warms up the film a little bit uh towards the end although they do both have the same ending which is somebody like looking back on how great the scene used to be before other people took over it (laughs) Uh, you know other people who are are crappy and not up to the same standards and have lowered everything and like wasn't it great back in my day uh and you defended it in casino i'm wondering if you defended as strongly in hustlers Mm. i'll defend it Actually, and this is another point from the article that the film doesn't really touch on, but I think is important in the same way, but I think is uh, worth noting in connection to Casino, is that the early 2000s was really like a heyday for strip club culture. Like it was really part of the mainstream and there was a fascination about it in pop music. We get that with the the Usher cameo uh, (laughs) in Hustlers, you know, and there was an element of celebrity with strippers that falls away in a way that the film equates with the recession, which is, is accurate, but it also also doesn't really, I think, do enough to highlight the cultural moment behind that heyday that makes it, to my mind, more than just a back-in-my-day nostalgia thing. But that's not really part of the connection, the trust connection, which I did want to talk about in the context of, you know, a movie about, two movies about hustlers. And I wanted to sort of take this moment to distinguish between a hustle and a scam because I think what we have in both of these movies are hustles and not scams because a scam implies an innocent who is getting screwed over whereas a hustle I feel is more sort of a 
of a dance between two people who each have their own motives and both kind of know that they are being taken advantage of by the other and it's a, a battle for an upper hand you know, and, and to come out on top. There's a little more culpability on both sides in a hustle that I think plays into both films' fascination with trust. Because if this was just a movie about scammers screwing over innocents for the hell of screwing them over, then the whole idea of said scammers being, you know, kind of obsessed with finding trust in their life sounds really like cliché. But I think if you think about hustlers as kind of in this constant battle, dance, whatever, for an upper hand in any kind of scenario where money is exchanged, then the idea of being able to have someone in your life who is not doing that to you and who is family in a way uh, is is appealing in a, a different sort of way. Well, one thing I would say though is that isn't Casino about a scam that seems like a hustle, in the sense that mm-hmm. if you're somebody who goes to Vegas, you have you're entering into this this agreed upon arrangement with with the house. However, you also enter in with the expectation that it, that you could play and win. And the film's point is that that is not what Vegas is set up to do. The Vegas is set up to keep you playing until you lose all of your money, uh, mm-hmm. and that that's the scam. I mean, you know, the film emphasizes over and over again that it's like you know robbing a bank. It's like that level yeah. of like. I'm going to take your money. I'm thinking of it more on the individual level of, of Ginger ah. and, and and sort of how she and Ace are sort of hustling each other into a relationship yeah. in, in, in a certain way. But I, I take your point about uh, in the broader scheme of, of Vegas and, and casinos. Well, wh- one of the reasons why I was excited about this pairing is because I think both films are about capitalism. Capitalism is a major theme in both movies and, and the biggest hustle of all capitalism <laughs> exactly the biggest hustle of Possibly all Possibly the biggest scam um, of all you know and, and both are just really consumed in a, in, a, in a great way i think with systems that are put in place to rip people off um and those systems can be large uh like las vegas and the whole purpose of las vegas and those system and the, or those systems can be kind of small time like we're like we're witness with the women in hustlers but i think there is a rationale behind them i mean the characters in both films will have that mindset that they're entitled to rip people off that's what they're supposed that's where they're that's what they're there for and what's galling to them is that they're of a certain class that isn't acceptable in capitalism that isn't allowed to be the people who ultimately make the money you know ace rothstein and in those the gangsters are not supposed to be the guys who benefit from the city of las vegas that ends up being corporations you know the the women and hustlers are not supposed to benefit from ripping people off but their wall street clients do that for a living and they're completely respectable. That's the, They wear a suit to work every day. No one's arresting them for the way they go about their business. And so there's that kind of distance between the two things. So I think that was, the films really come at this issue from a very similar place, in my view. Yeah, and I think Hustlers, which again is so much stronger in the first act, uh, gets at that idea from another angle really early 
when it shows Destiny before she's been taken under Ramona's wing navigating this new club and how much she has to pay out, how much she has to tip out of what, of what she makes to, or not, it's not really even tipping out. It's more just like greasing palms, mm-hmm. um, you know, to a guy who more or less threatens her unless, you know, she gives him a, a big chunk of her earnings. And like that is the context in which these women hatch and employ this scam within this system, like even setting aside the Wall Street of it all, because that's sort of a, again, a big depersonalized system that they only have brief interactions with. Even just the strip club ecosystem economy, whatever, regularly screws over its dancers. Like they have to pay to dance there. You know, (laughs) they are the, the main attraction and they have to pay to be there. And that is not unique to stripping. There's there's many other professions that require something similar. And it comes back to this idea of the compromises you're forced to make in a capitalist system and how that can skew your sense of what's acceptable and what's right and what's wrong and how you and the extent to which you should go to prioritize yourself and your own worth and earnings in that system. And with that in mind, both of these films kind of dive pretty heavily into the the benefits of capitalism being things, the things that you get, mm-hmm. the things that are inherently, you know, not necessary to your life. But Casino has extensive scenes of Sharon Stone rolling around on her bed with all of the jewelry that her husband's given her, like a, a million dollars worth of jewelry, her taking it out at the bank and putting it on and showing it to her daughter and saying, look at all the things daddy bought me because he loves me. Like these physical objects, this pretty garish looking jewelry is all the sign of her worth and the sign of her future, you know, which was why she's become so obsessed about getting her hands on it later is like, it's her power in the society. It's her Mm -hmm. independence in the society is these physical items. And we get the same thing from the uh, the hustler crew, uh, especially in that Christmas scene where they're all just like opening these incredibly lavish, unbelievably expensive gifts. Uh, And we get another little like, Hey, it's a chinchilla coat Mm -hmm. in what has connection. Absolutely. A direct nod to casino uh, in both films. But you know, it's all about the objects. It's all about the power of what you can buy with the money you scam and however you have to get there. You know, in the end, being rich is just about having all of these objects, having any object you look at and desire the ability to pick it up. And I think both films dive pretty hard into that fantasy and how it means power and independence for the women involved. Yeah, it's very seductive. And um, I mean, I think that kind of feeds into another connection with both movies which is cinematic brio which is which is style and i think that's so important when you have two films that are about these criminal operations but also about luxury and materialism and wealth that you have filmmakers who have the talent to be able to fetishize all that stuff and Mm -hmm. and make it exciting Uh, and you know there is a point there is kind of a degree to which hustlers is not quite is like powerful stylistically as as a Scorsese film. It kind of can't be because nobody does Scorsese like Scorsese. But it also kind of falls away after the recession. Like it gets a little more realist. I feel. Yeah. After yeah. Because you, you can't really follow. You can't really. Uh, yeah. I you mean, get- there's a scene in an old Navy. 
you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How 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 can you? How much really... brio can you bring to Old Navy? But 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 it's it's key. I mean, I think kind of what makes both films pretty exciting, at least for a time, is to have that excitement. And you know, I mean, a lot of people are talking about Jennifer Lopez's big striptease scene to Criminal by. Fiona mm-hmm. Apple. I mean, that's a pretty cool scene in terms of the staging is oh, really yeah. exciting. The the music is great. You know, obviously it's a pretty persuasive performance. I mean, it, it's uh, it, it it matters. I mean, the style is such an important part of these movies, and a lot of what get, you know, we have to know, we have to feel what is giving these characters pleasure. You know, and why why there's such an allure to the crimes they're committing. Um, and both films communicate that quite well, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm aware that I have used the word intoxicating multiple times. To, to describe how both of these films open and establish their worlds. And I think that sense of intoxication is important on a storytelling level uh, because of the, the reasons you're kind of talking about, Scott, and sort of establishing not quite motive, but mindset behind the, the actions of the film um, and how one could get swept up in this. But I think to like drill down into specifics in both cases, Uh, A lot, a lot, a lot of it comes down to music. Both of these films use needle drops. They they spare and they spare nothing when it comes to to the the needle drops in both quantity and quality. Like the the music is just a total ride in in both films, and it it uses uh, interesting songs in interesting ways, and occasionally very obvious songs in arguably also interesting Love ways. Love is the although. drug, for example, in Casino. <laughs> or uh, Gimme More, Britney Spears' Gimme More in Hustlers, which I actually loved that needle drop uh, when they're in the Escalade and the reveal that they're rocking out inside a car dealership. I thought that was a, a fun <laughs> little flourish. And as you talked about in Casino, sort of the camera that never stops moving and the interesting kind of look at me shots and the way the characters are introduced in ways that you can't look away from the way that we're introduced to ace being blown up and flung through the air and the way that we're introduced to ramona doing this incredible striptease like i mean those are indelible introductions and they serve a purpose in terms of establishing the rules or the boundaries of, of this world and what is acceptable within that world so I think we can agree that these two films are seductive in their ways, but uh, there's a lot of differences between seductive. how much we... That's re- the word I was trying to get at. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Yes, they're intoxicating <laughs> and seductive in their way, but though though I think we have some disagreements over how seductive and intoxicating they are. Uh, Casino is available on DVD and Blu-ray and from all the usual streaming services. Hustlers was a solid hit on opening weekend and should have some staying power at a theater near you. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha. What in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, virtually everything that I've experienced in the film world lately was at the Toronto International Film Festival, which we're going to talk about in a little more detail on a special sidebar uh, between me and Scott over on our Patreon site. But there's one film that almost inexplicably I saw and Scott did not see, so we're mm. not going to discuss it on that on that special bonus episode, and that is Takashi Miike's First Love. I find it surprising that Scott didn't see it because he's more of a Miike fan than I am. I've 
really only seen a handful of his films, having avoided him for a long time, probably because of the trailer for Itchy the Killer, which prominently features somebody's nipples being sawed off. Uh, uh, what are you going to do? Well, you're you're going to not watch that movie and you're going to keep your nipples away from Takashi Miki is what you're going to do. I, I just always had the impression of him as uh, an ultra-violent uh, kind of auteur and reluctantly dipping my toes into the world of Audition, one of Scott's all-time favorite films, uh, did not in any way disabuse me of that notion. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic film. Uh, it's just, it's very intense. And uh, <laughs> there's a lot of disturbing stuff in it. Now, the fact that something like Happiness of the Categories is so much fun mm-hmm. still had not really convinced me to, to go all in on Mike. But uh, the, his movie First Love played at TIFF, and I went with that kind of reluctance that one feels when uh, the same kind of reluctance that I went into the Nightingale with of people are already loving this. It's probably going to be great, but it's also going to be heavy and and violent. Well, it is violent. It's not heavy. It's hilarious. It's kind of a typical crime movie setup where you have a young woman who's framed as having stolen a bunch of drugs running into a young boxer who's down on his luck and he decides to protect her uh, and the two of them run away through the night together having crazy adventures. But it's really much more about all of the people in the the crime world around them. From a corrupt cop to a drug dealer and his girlfriend uh, to various people in various mob-affiliated groups. And it's just, it's really distinctive. It's full of very distinctive, very colorful characters. Now, we spent a bunch of time on this podcast talking about movies that immerse you in worlds, uh, criminal worlds where nobody's really sympathetic and you're not really sure you want to be there. This movie is all of those things, but I found it to be a blast. It's just so lively. It's so kinetic. Uh, it's so funny. It's so self-aware about the central character being kind of a, a generic, bland, ingenue pair and everybody else around them being more interesting and it's spectacularly over the top uh and it's also coming out on the 27th uh from walgo usa it walgo usa has can be somewhat erratic in terms of where it gets movies so i don't know if it'll be playing in a theater near you unless you live in a fairly major city but it's well worth looking for uh mike's first love yeah, I mean, Walgo USA, I think, is a quality distributor. I mean, they're mostly, obviously, Asian fare. But, yeah, I'm going to have to catch it, you know. Hopefully it comes through Chicago or I'll see it on DVD I mean, or streaming or something like that. I mean, I, I was, of course, very excited to see it and missed it at, at TIFF simply because of scheduling conflicts. It was one that I think was scheduled mostly towards the first half of the festival, and I was having to see a lot of things for variety at that time, and uh, I just don't think I could work out the conflicts. But humble brag uh, much? Do not, do not, well, you wouldn't, it's not humble bragging when you see what I had to write about for <laughs> variety. Uh, it's like various Canadian premieres. Um, but um, yeah, so it was, uh, I'm very excited to, to check it out because I've heard for, from you and from our, our, our friend Mike D'Angelo that it is top, top shelf Mikay, so really looking forward to that well what about you scott what's been good for you lately um so i want to recommend a film that i don't fully love uh and that i know tasha doesn't like uh and that's the jim jarmusch's zombie comedy the dead don't die uh this is a film that open can to not terribly good notices and i i will fully admit that it is not one of jarmusch's better genre rips like dead man or ghost dog the way of the samurai but i want to see what this film look this film is going to look so interesting 10 years from now, 20 years from now, it's just a comment on the times. I mean, it's so much in the tradition of George Romero's Living Dead movies, it is uh, about 
is reflection of the filmmaker's attitude about what's happening right now. And that attitude is so extraordinarily pessimistic. I mean, this is a film in which the zombie apocalypse is triggered by a man-made ecological disaster, and it's hastened by the the stupid and careless people who populate our planet. I mean that is that is the at the core of the film of this pessimism that we that we've brought this on ourselves. We have no answer to it. We're just going we're just kind of facing our doom. I mean it, it, you know Adam Driver there's like a running line where Adam Driver keeps saying this is not going to end well. And I think that is that's kind of the soul of the movie. You know, it, it's kind of slow getting going, but I think once the zombies start making their appearance it kind of hits a nice groove you get some really nice deadpan action between bill murray adam driver and chloe sevigny as as small town cops and uh you know there's a lot of wonderful little appearances by people like tilda swinton and and tom waits and steve buscemi is sort of a a maga type of farmer i mean i just think you know it's 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 ragged i get it uh but i think it's got a lot of positive qualities to it and i think that it has its finger on the pulse in a way that makes it interesting now but is going to make it extremely interesting down the line for however long we as a species survive anyway well i look forward to revisiting it 20 years from now on the next picture show podcast <laughs> and seeing if it does in fact feel like a, a commentary on the times <laughs> i found it just baffling just like bafflingly yeah. bland like with a cast that great and a premise as rich and flexible as the the deadpan zombie comedy yeah and then given some of the specific things that he does uh, with it, it just he seem it seems like he could have done so much more with some of the more outre uh, elements of that the film eventually heads into. I just I walked out of it thinking it feels like he thinks he reinvented the zombie movie because he hasn't seen enough zombie movies. I wouldn't question his cinephilia exactly, but I, I I do. It's not again not his biggest lift to date, but I don't know. It's got a quality. I think it's been kind of marked as a sort of huge misfire and i just think it's got a little bit more going for it so in that sense i kind of want to recommend it uh genevieve how about you well i i feel a little silly framing this as a recommendation because it is a film that has been seen by um let me just check the figures yes literally every person on planet earth has seen this movie <laughs> yeah so <laughs> i i'm i'm bringing it up more as an opportunity to discuss uh avengers endgame which is a movie that we uh as stated have all seen but never discussed on this podcast despite having discussed many films within the marvel cinematic universe which endgame is tasked with wrapping up to some extent or another and i i saw the film in the theaters but it's uh newly available for rental so i guess maybe that's the recommendation element of this you can rent it if you want to see it again but uh recently rented it kind of with the intention of having it on in the background while i i did other things because most of my movie watching happens that way this these days because so much of my viewing time is taken up by television um but so i i got endgame thinking i would just like do other stuff you know fold laundry or whatever while it was on and I got sucked right back into it all three hours of it again. You know, I, I was I was struck rewatching it, like how wieldly this movie is. Like it's such a it's more like behemoth than film. But I was really interested to see how well it managed all of its moving parts and 
did so mostly uh, in the lead up to this la- the final 45 minutes, which is basically just all battle sequence, uh, which is also kind of an interesting way the film is divided. But no one needs my recommendation to see Endgame if they if they haven't yet somehow. But um, like I said, I kind of wanted to bring it up more to, as just sort of an opportunity for if you guys have any thoughts on it that you wanted to uh, air here on the podcast as to sort of maybe close the book on our uh, time with the Marvel Cinematic Universe here on the show i only saw it the once but i i recently was in a theater seeing a movie and there was a a later movie that i wanted to see and so there was a a significant gap in between them but i wanted to take the opportunity having driven all the way downtown to the theater to go ahead and see the the film at the one place that was actually playing so while i was there this was after the re-release that where they were touting more new footage at the end and i kind of thought is that something i'm (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> going to need to write about like is that something I'm going to need to report on so I had it in mind that I would just sort of duck into the theater and like watch the final battle sequence again and see what the the end of the the new end of the movie was uh and I had miscalculated there was probably about 90 minutes to go and it says something that the movie was deep 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 into its plot still with 90 minutes to go but I had this same experience of just kind of getting sucked in I remember like when I saw it and wrote about it uh, a lot of the focus of my review was just if this wasn't the culmination of a 10 year 20 something movie project uh, all of the critics would say well this is a disastrous mess there are too many (laughs) too many characters too many plot lines it's the pacing is really lumpy it's all over the place but it's because it's a payoff. It's a it's a payoff yeah. for so many individual characters, despite like all of the crazy heist stuff that goes on and, and the big action. Parts of it is, are just kind of a hangout movie where it's like, oh, mm-hmm. let's let's check in with what what's Falcon up to? How is he feeling about things? Let's just spend some time with him. Natasha still upset about, uh, you know, all those people dying. And how are you how are you weathering that? Like the the first half of the movie in particular so much like an episode of the mm-hmm. leftovers um yep. and so emotionally satisfying in a way to finally see people in a superhero movie actually contend with failure actually contend right. with death for more than 10 seconds at a time before it turns out that oh they were fine after all so yeah there's there's a lot that's just very strange about that movie because it's such an experiment uh and, and it's so unprecedented in so many ways but for me, at least, it, it's it's still holding up. Yeah, I, I was very surprised by how much I liked it because I, I, I thought Infinity War was just torture. <laughs> it really <laughs> just excruciating to watch. It was like, and it just made me think, like, why, why is this a thing? Like, why, why are we making movies this way? <laughs> it was like a real crisis for me that movie. So for me to come <laughs> back, for me to come back and like. Endgame was kind of surprising. What surprised me, of course, was the amount of feeling I found that I did have for these characters over this time. The the weight of this entire interconnected universe was more significant to me than I had expected. And so some of those payoffs were affecting in ways I did not anticipate. So um, bravo to that. I mean, there's plenty of things I could say about the film that are unkind, but I think it for what it has to do, um, I think it pulls it off, you know. I mean, if you're a person and wholly invested in the MCU and you've seen 18 films or how many films, like a lot of films, yeah. um, to, leading up to this, you know, I, I mean, I think the, the the film is satisfying, and that is a very very hard thing for 
a movie like that to pull off and for the whole enterprise to pull off uh, too. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts and, and so a uh, hat tip to uh, Kevin Feig and to, and to, I guess the Russo brothers. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just, I'm going to give, I'm going to give Kevin, Kevin Feig, I guess I'll give the most credit to because he's, the, yeah, he's, he's the really the, the creative yeah. driving, driving force. Not, here, not, the, but, not the, wel- but, welcome to Moose. No, they didn't welcome to Moose Court. I don't know what they did. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's lots to be like the movie has flaws. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a perfect movie by any means. And there's so much to be cynical about with the, the MCU and, and what this movie represents. But I think it's hard to deny that this is just a unique cinematic object. Like there's no other movie that has had to do what this movie does. And the fact that it does it as well as it does, I think is, you know, worth worth celebrating, you know, amid whatever cynicism you might have about uh, the, the MCU. You know, I think it's it's okay to admit that Endgame is actually maybe okay. Yeah. And uh, now we're done with Marvel, and so we're going to move on. <laughs> yep. Never Let us never speak of it again. <laughs> and that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Genevieve, what's coming up next? Joaquin Phoenix's performance as the Joker is one of the most talked about of the year, and his movie of the same name, directed by Todd Phillips, has been trailed by anticipation and controversy since it was first announced. But as good as Phoenix might be, his work was always going to be compared to that of Heath Ledger in Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. Though Phoenix has the lead role and Ledger has to play foil to Batman, both films are using superhero stories to make a disturbing statement about the times in which we live. For our next pairing, we'll look at The Dark Knight and Joker and compare and contrast their efforts to elevate the comic book blockbuster into art. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Casino, Hustlers, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days, Genevieve? You can find my work at vulture.com where I am the deputy TV editor and you can find me sometimes on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Tasha? You can find my writing and various things that I've commissioned from other people over at TheVerge.com, where I'm the film and TV editor. I'm on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Scott? You can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work in the New York Times, Washington Post, Vulture, NPR, uh, Variety, and other fine publications. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Our absent co-host, Keith Phipps, you can find him at at kphips3000 on Twitter and you can find his work a lot of the same places you can find mine but other places too Vulture, The Verge, uh, The Ringer, Decider and other fine places too so uh, we'll have Keith back on our next episode. He also writes our Patreon newsletter so you should subscribe so you can read that. That is a really good point. That newsletter is quite (laughs) substantial and also will kind of give you a sense of like what kind of writing out there has really got us excited so um so uh you get the newsletter you pay a little bit more you get the newsletter and the bonus episodes it's a pretty good deal you can stay updated on the next picture show by visiting nextpictureshow.net 
via Twitter at Next Picture Pod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Yeah.